welcome to season two of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, Not True But Useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. This week, our play is Tis Pity She's a Whore by John Ford. It's a gory Jacobean revenge tragedy from the 17th century about an incestuous relationship between brother and sister Giovanni and Annabella. Here's a quick recap before we begin. Annabella's nurse, Putana, encourages the siblings to have sex. Meanwhile, Annabella is being pursued by several eligible bachelors. She agrees to marry one called Saranzo, knowing that she can never allow her affair with her brother to become public. Saranzo has jilted a former lover, Hippolyta, who's plotting with Saranzo's servant Vasquez to murder him in revenge. Annabella discovers that she's pregnant with Giovanni's child, and on the advice of her priest, speeds up the wedding with Saranzo to cover up her secret. At the wedding, Hippolyta attempts to kill Saranzo by getting Vasquez to poison his wine, but Vasquez decides to stay loyal to his master and poisons Hippolyta instead. She dies horribly at the wedding feast, cursing the newlyweds. Saranzo then discovers Annabella's pregnancy and locks her in her room, planning revenge on her and her secret lover. Putana reveals that the father is Giovanni, and Saranzo tears out her eyes in punishment for encouraging their incestuous relationship. Annabella tries to warn Giovanni by writing him a letter in her own blood. Giovanni arrives at the house and kills her as he kisses her. He then walks into a party that Saranzo is throwing, with Annabella's heart on his dagger revealing their relationship to everyone. He kills Saranzo and then is fatally wounded by Vasquez. Tis Pity She's a Whore was the first show that Declan and Nick worked on together as director and designer at the start of their careers, and they did another production of it in 2011. The music you're hearing now was composed by Nick Powell for that production. And now over to Declan and Nick. Well, we're sat here over a cup of tea with today's play, Tis Pity, She's a Whore. And this is quite an important play in the history of Cheek by Jowl because it was the play that launched you as a company and which you revisited again yes. uh, several years ago. We did um, a version a long time ago for a theatre company run by Angelique Rockus. It was called the New Internationalist Theatre Company, I think. And it was out of that we, ha- we found the confidence to launch Cheek by Jowl, really. And our first tour for Cheap by Jar was The Country Wife the following year. But it's an extraordinary play, Tispitish as a Whore, and it's clearly inspired by Romeo and Juliet. But the balcony in Tispitish as a Whore is the fact that they happen to be brother and sister. And what was it that first drew you to this play, do you think? It's beautifully written. I mean, it's very clear. The lines of dramatic action are very clear. But there's still, of course, at the heart of it, which I'm more attuned to now that I'm older, but there's a great mystery, which is, why do they actually do it? They're not going to survive it. And why do we do the things that we don't want to do? First time we did it, I felt very much it was, you know, a story of 
forbidden love and is very much on the side of the two lovers against the awful oppressive world and it's a world in which the women are very much oppressed by the men and that was very much at the forefront of our minds when we were doing it in 1981. We came back to it of course the world seems different to me my eyes just seem very different and I felt that the very important thing was that the women have huge agency they transgress but the punishment for the transgression has got nothing to do with their transgression. It's to do with the, the men's desire to build power. But the women um, have great desire for power too. And um, the women have fantastic agency. So you, the women aren't victims in a passive way. And I think that's very vital. And also I felt much less sentimental about Giovanni and, and Arabella. As I've grown older, I've been able to suspend judgment better and see things more clearly. Because I, I don't think, you know, you bad good i don't think like that so much anymore so this first production of tis pity she's a whore was also the first time that you two sat down together as a director and a designer mm. to put a show together can you describe that first design meeting which i believe happened over a kitchen table yeah it did indeed we were playing it in um, a very small theatrical theater space run by a woman who owned a lot of cats but it was tiny it only seated about 50 people this woman's very important she was called anne fenn and she was an enormous unsung heroine of a british theater at the time she kept this going against all odds to down it was only really the one other i think fringe space in the west end that's since been turned into a nightclub we had a small company and we basically decided on three benches, a set of three benches, which could be bolted together for the second half into a bed, and the company processed on the bed with Giovanni and Annabella on the bed. And it was a, a moment together that we kind of realised that we could do something together and that the mechanics of it and the aesthetic uh, worked. So... This is the beginning of a famous habit that you both have of not really having official design meetings, which I suppose started with this production, right? Because it happened over your kitchen table with some matchstick benches. Well, except in a sense, I suppose that was a design meeting. That, I mean, we didn't have anywhere else to meet it was, it was apart from the kitchen. It was, it, was our, it was our first and last <laughs> design meeting, actually. <laughs> One funny thing I, I should say, really, uh, is that obviously we wanted to work together. We were very young. We had lots of that hormonal energy of, of, of wanting to make it, wanting to do something, wanting to work together. But when we actually did it, it was a bit like that sort of miracle of plane flight, that there's nothing in the aeroplane that makes it go up, apart from going forward. My own feeling of it is something, some sort of lift happened, and we were doing it. And we couldn't quite work out how it was we got to the place where we were doing it. It really seemed to come from somewhere else. There was desire to do it, but the capacity to do it just seemed to come from completely left field. And it was like a coincidence that we could do this thing, which was work together and make a big rock play work with a sheet and the trestle tables that we did. So we, we need to be grateful for that rather than think that we earned it. But that gives rise to what is a really unique collaboration between the two of you, in which you create these shows sort of symbiotically together um, in a way that's very fluid and has both of you as kind of equal theatre makers rather than siloing design and directing in the way that many other collaborators have to. Yeah, and we're very lucky because we've only done a couple of shows a year really and um, so we've been able to think about them and see them a lot i would like to say this business though about 
you know, people say, oh, it's amazing that you just don't have meetings. What that means is we don't use the words to each other. But it's incredibly important to remember that our most important communications are nonverbal. That's not just between me and Nick. That's like, it's not that we're magic weird people. It's just how we are. That's how mother is with a child. And that's how I'm at pains always to point out that words are a modern technology like the internet. And before words came along, human beings were able to communicate with each other through all sorts of other means. Now, of course, because words are so centralized in our culture, people think, oh, if it's not through words, then it must be magic. But that's, you know, thinking that something's magic just because you don't understand it. There's lots of highly rational ways that human beings communicate with each other, which is why live meetings with live people in a live space is so important. And we're also confused why Zoom conferences are exhausting. Of course they're exhausting because it's a a simulacrum, it's a fake reproduction of what it's like to be with another human being in a room. And of course it's exhausting because it's anti-human to do that for too long. I mean, you can, of course, we can make limited communications with each other through words alone, but they're limited. And the great writers who use words really well use the limitations of those words, like Shakespeare. So it's a space around the words that he manipulates. But actually, being able to communicate without words is something we managed with very easily. And it's sometimes like kids saying, you know, how did you manage to communicate with each other before the internet, before mobile phones? And you think, well, we managed. And humans managed before the advent of words. But it's very interesting, this point, because it's to do with how I think, really, an actor who's acting well works. You know, we doubt the process that happens, and so we we pretend the verbalized process is the only process that matters. So education gets reduced to an acquisition of skills, and actually a proper education is due with being in a room with another person and being infused by their spirit. When, When Nick can do it, I'm very happy. But if we were to be thinking, hmm, we could do it this way, we could do it that way, hmm, how do you think we should do it? If we were sort of like hovering on the outside in the world of how, it wouldn't be very good, you know? You need to think about it, read it, feel it, tell each other stories about it. And there's a moment when it sort of sinks in, well, it sinks into Nick, really, and out comes this thing. And, and then it seems inevitable to me. It's very dangerous to think you've got a choice. Because in the way, if you're making art and you've got it, you feel you've got a choice, you're doing something wrong. And Nick, in your most recent production of Tis Fishy, She's a Whore, I noticed something in the design which was really featured in the first season, which is the importance of another space, a space just outside the walls of this space that's exerting pressure on the space that we're seeing. And you brought two of those. Onto well, the- that's true, but I think we should talk a little bit about the space that we started off with. And that did come out very early on in rehearsal. Well, I don't know, in the first two weeks. Because that set was designed very fast and ambitiously because it was a room with a bathroom and another space. But I remember we were just working with the actors and it became clearer and clearer that actually the play is so much about Annabella. Annabella is right in the middle. So it became a play about an adolescent girl in her bedroom fantasizing about her brother. And actually, it remained a fantasy because we were able to bring her back after she'd been cut up in the bathroom, as it were. We were able to bring her back on stage still alive, and that's one thing you can do in the theatre, which is wonderful. From the very beginning, they're talking about her. Well, in fact, it's a scene between Giovanni and the prior about his relationship with Annabella, And it 
worked. Again, it was one of those things that worked, that he was actually cavorting with Annabella, who wasn't, as it were, in the space, but who is in this space. And the friar is trying to communicate something to Giovanni about, well, basically how bad an idea it was. And that just kind of worked. And so you had these two really remarkably charged spaces that were just glimpsed through doorways in the back of the stage, one of which was this pristine bathroom, which then became blood-soaked towards the end of the play, and the other was the, the corridor to the rest of the house. And those two spaces kept on exerting pressure on the space that we were in, and we were aware of this incredible tension that was always happening with those spaces. How did you arrive at those two doors? Well, having decided that it was going to be her bedroom, it seemed obvious that you need one entrance into the bedroom from the rest of the house, and also, it, they were rich enough family, I suppose, to have a bathroom en suite. So she had a bathroom. Bathrooms are very good for half-seeing violence in because they are pristine and white. And yes, we were able to um, soak it in blood, which you half saw. You never fully saw the bathroom, but you just saw the shower spattered with blood where um, he had torn her heart out. The bathroom is the only room in the house with a lock on the door, and that's kind of important in tragedy in ways that it's a, a place where you're naked, where you perform bodily functions that you don't want other people to see. It's very interesting other space to enter half glimpse. Um, so again, the secret's not to show the violence, but to suggest it. And I think that's something that's a, a common theme in lots of your plays, that when something terrible and violent happens, mm. you're very good at giving us a half glimpse, yeah. like in The Changeling through that little glass door yes. where you could mm. see bloody handprints appearing, or or here in Tispetitius Hall where you see a glimpse mm. into that horrible bathroom. And it's always a an incredible moment because you remind us that we're doing it in yes. our imaginations and that we're grotesque and that we are participating yes. in this horrible masquerade. Yes. I'm always fascinated by, when you go to see a horror movie in your teens particularly, if you see a good-looking young couple holding each other, giggling at night, running into a car, and not going to the front seats, but going to the back, because they're going to make out together, you don't think, oh, I'm so happy, this is the beginning of a love affair. You think, oh, my God. They're going to be dead. They're going to be dead minutes. soon. And then, sure enough, you hear the dum-dum-dum, you hear the kind of Jaws music, and you see somebody in a black hood emerging. And you're thinking, "Don't please don't kill the beautiful young lovers. I identify with beautiful young lovers. But identification is very dodgy, because actually it's a predicament you identify with, which is very different from identifying with the people. We're not just the beautiful young couple in the back of the car. We're also the person with the knife coming to end their pleasure. And they're going to be punished for having the good time that we don't have because we dread that we are the murderer. And indeed, when we see the procedural crime series at the end, there's a slight amount of relief that the detective doesn't discover it was us who did it because there's a kind of primordial guilt at the base of all these things. You can't say it's either bad or good, it just is. And, and we can tell it is because they are so incredibly compulsively... Um, some people don't watch them, but an awful lot of people do. I, I just think that's really important to know when we're watching violence, that it's what we're bringing to it that matters. Am I saying that we're all basically sort of violent and cruel? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that we all have the capacity to be violent and cruel, and we need to keep an eye on it. And if we keep an eye on it, then things will be better. It's when we don't keep an eye on it that problems can happen. But actually, we don't do it to make the world a better place. We do it to, to see it. 
to see it outside ourselves. And when we see it outside ourselves, then we're a bit more comfortable with it. So would you say that that is why we have such an appetite for plays like Tis Pity She's a Whore, which are full of incest and violence and jealousy and in many ways are deeply unredemptive? It's because it puts in the light the part of us that we're not willing to talk about very often. And that is uncomfortable, but it's also something we have a real drive to do. Yes. Let me make very clear. I'm not saying this is who we are, full stop, state, not process. I'm saying process, not state. This is who we could be, and we need to pray we never do these things, that we're never tested, that we're never pushed into these situations. But it's important to understand that we have this capacity. And insofar as the horror films or the Jacobean blood tragedy have that effect, then I think in a funny way they are redemptive because we see that we have a choice in our lives. You know, people in these plays very often get into the nightmare situation where they believe they don't have a choice. But we are outside choosing and it helps us have some distance between us and what happens. So in that way, it helps us look back at ourselves that all of these plays mm-hmm. at some point turns around and asks you to look back at where you're viewing yes. it from. It depends where you stand. You know, the, the young couple getting the back of the car. I mean, someone could look and say, oh, but, you know, who would want to kill the prom king and queen? You know, who, the, the people who've been elected by the school authorities to be the best looking and most successful young people are going to be crowned at the prom dance. And my reply I've read is, who wouldn't want to kill the prom king and queen? Then you might look very shocked, but I think it's a propensity in us. to, to We need to look at that, rather, I think, than pretend it doesn't exist. So there is a huge value in staging ugly stories sometimes. Would you agree? I, I would, but that's not why I do them. I do them because I don't know why I do them. I don't know why I watch procedurals on TV. And I know um, people like to watch them, and I feel part of a common humanity. And I'm not showing people what life is like. I'm saying to people, this scares me, does it scare you as well? And then we we sort of stand together watching something in awe, saying, I wish I didn't find this fascinating. Maybe you do as well. Let's talk a little bit more about Annabella's fantastic bedroom, which had some really excellent posters in it. What was your inspiration for Annabella's interior design choices? Well, it was very much in the air at the time. That vampire thing, Twilight and True Blood was one of the posters, I remember. It was just very much in the air at the time. And so we we used them and, and painted the room blood red and all the sheets blood red. She was in a red room. But it came from her imagination, the whole affair. So this sort of contemporary fascination which actually goes throughout history of the connection between violence and sex. And yeah, and sex death. equals death, yes, exactly. Mm. Like, But there's something that I should say about this that I think is very important, that whenever we do a Jacobean tragedy, people say, why do you think there's such a fashion suddenly for doing Jacobean tragedies? And now I can say, do you know, I was asked that question five years ago, I was asked that question ten years ago, I was asked that question 40 years ago. There's actually, <laughs> they're cyclical. So what's not interesting is why are they so fashionable? What's interesting is how is it that we manage to forget that people are really fascinated to see things like this? That's what I find very interesting. And that when you're young, you haven't seen the cycle go around so often. But now I have, and they're just always fascinating. So we talked in our last episode about The Winter's Tale, about how you often point out something that is hidden or offstage or unlooked at in every production. 
What do you think that was for Tispiti She's a Whore? I think it was her retreat into this bedroom and all these things under the bed and things she'd throw under the bed. And then these sort of servant figures that you have in Romeo and Juliet and Tispiti She's a Whore who are kind of facilitating a really bad decision by the young people. Like there are no adults. There are no adults and such adults as there are appear to be infantilized. And there's actually no one to offer proper parental guidance in any way to these people. They're growing up in a world bereft of adults and parents. There's and, no mother and there's no father, a completely irresponsible father. You know, that's why the, the bedroom becomes such a territorial space for so many adolescents. And some adolescents do go so far as to put a lock on their door and get very angry when people come into their space, which I totally understand. But there's also this sort of sense of bad boundary in it, like that all the suitors had come round, and then after a fight, one of them go into a shower, his, the shower and sort of come out with a towel around her. And also it's a bedroom which could be anybody. So she's sort of putting on kind of cliches of cool that weirdly never seem to change. You know, and she'd sort of do bits in American accents and Putana would go along with that and sort of and perform as being the maid and she'd kind of perform as being the young mistress. The whole thing had a sort of low-level hysteria to it that, the, that life was a, a kind of performance, but there was a deep disconnect from reality. And the only food she seemed to eat was um, a box of chocolates and crisps and other people would have the crisps and so on. So what I loved was that sort of um, dreamlike melding from one space, one set of relationships to another. And you started the production with an epic teenage dance in a bedroom. Yes. Choreographed by Annabella, played by Lydia Wilson. Absolutely. Um, And she loved to do it herself. And Jane let her. Jane Gibbs, our our choreographer and director of movement and associate director, she let her do that. And, And so Lydia was able to take power over the company and instruct them in this in this ferocious dance. And it's something that you often do, actually, at the beginning of your productions, which is to start with a highly tense and charged dance scene before we even start with text. Why do you think you've got such an appetite for that? I love dance. Um, You know, it's no coincidence, I think, that we've ended up not so much directing opera or some theatre directs do a bit more ballet. Um, In the beginning wasn't the word. There was movement way before then. It's very good to start a rehearsal, I think, with people dancing and singing. So they feel confident in the space. It's great to see the body liberated like that. But I think dance is very basic to the human soul. And it's good to look at that and use it and be nourished by it and not necessarily understand why. So most rehearsal periods, we begin with a dance and a song and, and exercises of motion well before we start to look at the text. And I've also noticed that it. this is also very true of Tis Pity She's a Whore in as much as you had actually everybody on stage most of the time yes. in uh, around her, which kind of created the image of actually the whole system in which she was imagining her life and yes. also that the whole community was kind of responsible for what was going on, that everybody really kind of knew what was happening. And you often do start plays with these dances that do seem to bring on stage the whole um, community of the play at once. So we see the kind of magnitude of it. The trick is having nothing up your sleeve. So the trick is we'd you know, declare our stuff rather than bringing in strange bits of scenery from the wings. Or I think that thing of bringing everybody on stage is, is really important because in the society in which we live, um, it's very useful for advertisers and politicians 
to um, pump up our narcissism. And you sell things by making people feel more that we are the center of the world and that we have lots of choice. And we, and we know we're free because we can choose between Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola. The conspiracy is that you are the center of things. Of Yeah, what you feel is important, but it's what you feel in connection that matters as well. And I think that was something that was suggested in the production. And I have to say, I thought that was what was so powerful about the design and the way that it invited us to participate in the violence of it, because you showed us your hand very quickly. We, it was this space, two rooms you can glimpse, and the whole company. It was like you showed us the deck of cards yeah. and then showed us what we were going to do with it. Yes. <laughs> which, was, <That's> very good. <laughs> which was delicious and terrifying. Mm. So, and that's often the case in, in your designs, Nick, I think, that you show us your hand very quickly. Well, yes. I wouldn't say that was a principle, but partly that's been pragmatic. And I mean, we have very little on stage, therefore the more objects you can use in more ways than one, the better. So that Annabella's room access is used for Hippolyta's room, and we see scenes which sort of happen in Annabella's imagination but are actually happening or not. And so the same bed has different functions. And that was also delicious, this, this idea that you were calling on us to understand how we were viewing the world because you were showing us how Annabella was viewing reality. That reality was always one step removed through the filter of how someone was looking at it, yes. which I think drew us in as well. Yes, but when we forget that that's the basic nature of things, at the end of Troilus and Cressida, now how does it work? Thersites comments on Ulysses, who is showing Troilus how Cressida is being unfaithful with Diomede. So we're looking at someone looking at something, looking at something, looking at something, it goes on. And it's wonderful because it gives you a kind of sensation of not unreality, but it actually makes you understand that maybe reality isn't quite what it seems. Absolutely. So here's my favourite end of the episode question. What is your favourite moment or line from Tis Pity She's a Whore? I can't think in terms of lines and moments, but I find the atmosphere between Putana, the servant, and Annabella, her mistress, quite interesting because it reminds me slightly of um, Jeunet's The Maids. And you don't kind of know who's... Am I protecting you? Am I imprisoning you? Are you looking after me? Are you making me safe? Are you suffocating me? And the sort of the play between the two of... We had wonderful, wonderful actresses to play those parts. But it really did seem to come alive, that relationship, which is extraordinary, really. Well, thank you both for a grisly discussion this afternoon, and I look forward to our next episode. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to check out pictures of Cheek by Jail's production of Tis Pity She's a Whore, take a look at the archive on the website. There's a link in the podcast notes. This series theme music was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jail's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music for this episode composed by Nick Powell for Tis Pity She's a Whore. Join us next week when we will be discussing Alfred Jerry's explosively absurd play, Ubu Hua. Until then, stay well.